0: We are in Jude, and we'll be looking from verse 16 through the end of the chapter. Why don't we stand together, and I'll read the text. These are grumblers, complainers, walking according to their own lusts, and they mouth great swelling words, flattering people to gain advantage. But you, beloved, remember the words which were spoken before by the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ, how they told you that there would be mockers in the last times who would walk according to their own ungodly lusts. These are sensual persons who cause divisions, not having the spirit. But you, beloved, building yourselves up on your most holy faith, praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in the love of God looking for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ unto eternal life. And on some have compassion, making a distinction, but others save with fear, pulling them out of the fire, hating even the garment defiled by the flesh. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you faultless before the presence of his glory with exceeding joy, to God our Savior, who alone is wise, be glory and majesty, dominion and power, both now and forever. Amen. Amen. Go ahead and have a seat. Last Sunday, I uh, got to head over to the Jacobson's home, Eric and Kristen, and pick Russell up from a play date. That is where I picked up uh, my box full of rhubarb, in case you're wondering. They've got like a factory of rhubarb over there, so talk to them. Uh, and I got to go into Eric's uh, workshop. I don't know if you know, but Eric is a uh, an artist, a painter, um, very gifted, very skilled, and um, love looking at his paintings. And I was able to interview him, in a sense, and talk about painting and something that's a bit foreign to me. Uh, and I was noticing those paintings and how beautiful the colors are uh, that Eric uses as he paints these life, uh, these these scenes of life uh throughout crook county and even you know the newell's home if you saw the newell's home he painted and you can see fred poking his head out of the you know of the window uh there but uh it was it was a beautiful time with eric there in his shop but i noticed just these beautiful vivid colors almost the whole uh workshop is just just popping with so i mean your eyes are just looking at everything and the way he decorated he just did a great job uh anyways props eric great work bro um but I was reading uh, a commentary this week that was speaking about the vivid colors that Jude uses to describe these certain men who would creep into the church uh, and, and do such, uh, such false gospels, such, such works of false gospels, such works of deceit, uh, such works of sinfulness, uh, leading people astray. Uh, that the, the writer of this commentary said that Jude uses vivid colors to describe these men. He does not use the black and white. He does not use a gray scale. Uh, he's very clear on these men and their philosophies and their ways of life and, and the outcome that they will bring. And, you know, so really the middle of this book, this chapter of Jude, it's just long. You know, we've spent about four weeks looking at it. And, uh, you know, it's it's a task to read the description of these creepos who are coming within the church uh, to lead people astray. And here in 2019 in Prineville, Oregon, uh, where we may seem in a safe location, uh, it's very relative to us today. It's very uh, true for us today to listen to the same heedings that Jude wrote his people. Uh, as Paul, when saying goodbye to the Ephesian elders in Acts chapter 20, gave warning to those pastors when he said, after my departure, savage wolves will come in. And it says, they'll come in among you, not sparing the flock. And so you're just kind of looking at all of you today and you might just glance around and look at the people around you that we are a flock. God has saved us into a uh, community, he has saved us into a fold. And how, uh, how uh, fearful and what a warning it is to just consider people coming in among us and just with the atten- intention of ripping us apart and leading people astray, leading them to the pits of hell. These savage wolves would not spare the flock. And then Paul goes on to say that also from among yourselves, even among your own elder team men will rise up and they will speak perverse things or crooked things to draw away disciples after themselves. And so it's a very similar warning that Jude gives us that from among ourselves these, these uh, savage wolves would come, they would rise up, they would speak perverse things, they would exchange the grace of God for lewdness, and with an effort of drawing disciples after themselves. So uh, Alistair Begg says in one of his sermons, it is phenomenal naivete on the part of Christian leadership to think that some kind of theologically vague and harmlessly accommodating theology will be sufficient to guard and keep our people in light of the attacks which come not only from the outside, but may also arise from within. So we want to be very clear as we're going through the word, what our statements of faith are, who we are as a church, what we believe and what we encourage our members of our church to believe so that when, when the counterfeit comes on in, it's just so quickly, uh, so quick, so quickly, so quickly we are able to uh, discern that counterfeit. And it's interesting to know that those times have happened throughout the years and, uh, and to to speak in our fellowship times of, and rem- remember when this happened, remember when this happened. Remember just when the red flags of the church went up in the people with their discernment. They were able to say, man, this isn't right. And we want to be uh, among those who would be discerning as these apostates, these false teachers are predicted. And so moving through the book, we just have read of just kind of the final descriptions of these Certain men, these guys who would creep in. These are the guys that Jude uh, earnestly exhorts us to contend against. And we just read that they're grumblers or they're complainers. You know, so one way to just kind of realize who they are, it's they will be murmuring. Uh, I believe it's onomatopoeia that is a word that sounds like it is. You know, and murmur is one of those grumble, grumble, grumble. You know uh, These complainers, you can just pick them up and, and you can sense right away that there's something not right. I think it was Constable who said, he who's out of touch with God is prone to grumble about anything. And so, uh, man, just great word of caution. As Philippians tells us, let's do all things without grumbling. Let's do all things without complaining. These are guys that Walk according to their own lusts, so they don't walk according to the Spirit as we're called to do in the New Testament. They're not walking according to the new nature. They're not walking according to the Word of God, but they're walking according to their own worldly desires, their old, their own worldly cravings and covetousness. And and lust is the word that the New King James uses there with their mouth, they'll use great swelling words. And, you know, it's really no secret as to uh, how easy it is to find these guys today in our culture, within our media, on the TV. Um, You know, it's just, you can just walk through this list and say, bada bing, bada boom, there they are, right? Um, But they are uh, swelling words with their mouth. And it's interesting because when you think about that, they mouth great swelling words Just a simple Greek dictionary search comes up with this, that they are full of hot air, right? Great swelling words, like the hot air balloon, just begins to swell with the hot air. They're full of it. They are haughty. They are pompous. One of the words is bombastic, all right? These are those certain men. They're boastful. In their boasting, they flatter people to gain the advantage, to benefit themselves, they'll speak these words. The English Standard Version says of this verse, They are grumblers, malcontents, following their own sinful desires. They are loud mouth boasters, showing favoritism to gain the advantage. Uh, you remember the last few weeks, uh, I've quoted a bit from Dietrich Bonhoeffer, I just finished his biography this week. It was a, a bittersweet time to say goodbye to that book. Uh, but I have one final quote from you that I had written down. As Bonhoeffer wrote from Tegel Prison, while he was in prison for um, standing up against Nazi socialism, against Hitler. He writes this, The great masquerades of evil has played havoc with all our ethical concepts. For evil to appear disguised as light or charity or historical necessity or social justice is quite bewildering to anyone brought up on our traditional ethical concepts. While for the Christian who bases his life on the Bible, it merely confirms the fundamental wickedness of evil so uh, it 's interesting to read that and to see the similarities of what and i 'm not trying to be some sort of you know conspiracy theorist guy or you know anyone that's uh, just you know, trying to post some weird blog or something on the internet, but um, it is interesting to know all that uh, Bonhoeffer stood against when the nazi socialistic agenda began to creep into the church of germany and then you began to watch the leaders of those churches make their oath of allegiance to adolf hitler they began to take down anything of a christ-centric um uh portrayal within the church such as the crosses such as the emblems and whatnot uh they would strip parts out of the bible it had to do with anything Jewish, which, by the way, is a lot of the Bible. Uh, they would rip out anything that would be humility of Paul and anything that would portray Jesus as anything less than a victorious uber-human. And uh, as these uh, pastors from Germany began to take that oath to Hitler and become part of the Reich Church, uh, then you began to see some other pastors stand up for biblical authority and for the gospel uh, as we see it in the word of God in Jesus Christ towards all nations and people and tribes and tongues. And uh, that being said, uh, I, I love his quote here because evil is is such a trickster. You know, Satan is such a trickster. He masquerades as light, but he likes to play havoc with all of our ethical concepts. Okay. And it reminded me of 2014. Kevin Vaughn and I took a trip to uh, Birmingham, Alabama to go to the Radical Intensive. And it was there that our, our, our understanding of God's heart for the world through missions was just transformed. Our church was transformed at that great time away with God. And uh, me being the genius that I am, I happened to click the wrong button as I ordered our airline tickets, and we ended up in Birmingham a day before we were supposed to be there. So I mean, but who doesn't want to be in Birmingham for a day? Am I right? OK. So uh, so Kevin and I uh, decided, you know what, man, so much happened here in the South uh, concerning,, um, you know, the, the fight for uh, racial uh, equality. And so we wanted to go to the museum. Uh, what was it called? Oh, man, uh, this is all just coming to me as I'm speaking, So, which is a great practice for public speaking, in case you're wondering. Uh, the Museum for... So there you go. Look it up. Google it. It's awesome. Uh, but uh, it was there that we walked through and we saw the history of the South and their hatred towards the blacks, their hatred towards any other races but the whites, and uh, we walked through this museum, and they, you know, and it was everything about the freedom marches. It was everything about Martin Luther King Jr. It was everything about Rosa Parks. It was just a wonderful time. And Kevin and I walked through, and just were like so ashamed of, you know, what so many of our relatives and family members had been a part of. And we just, you know, we were apologizing to every African American that we could see, and they're were like, "We're so sorry. We were such. So- he is a jerk. He's a real jerk. You know, my family. No." Uh, and, and as we worked our way through this museum and just our hearts were broken for uh, what happens when we become prideful uh, in ourselves, uh, you get to the end of this museum and you're just heartbroken. Um, and you're also thankful for the directions that our country has gone towards freedom for everybody and equality. Um, but of course, that being said, the new addition to the museum was that uh, for a new form of civil rights, which was... Uh, that for the homosexuals and that for the transgenders and that for the so on and so forth. And uh, the, the way that they tried to link those social problems together uh, was tragic and was sad. It was a way that evil and sinfulness masquerades as light and social justice justice issues. Social justice issues. <laughs> Singular, okay? But plural, all at the same time. It's integrate. Okay, okay. Uh, With that being said, as we look at the scripture, you see there's a difference between God's heart for the races and for the nations and his heart to redeem all versus that of how he's created our sexuality, how he's created uh, us to be holy and to be like him and to walk in the genders and the roles that he has created for us. They're, They're different things biblically, if that's our authority. And as a Christian church, that's our authority. And so we stand alone on the word of God concerning issues and social justice things. Now that being said, many hateful things have been done towards those of the homosexual community and the transgendered community and the attacks that have come that have been anything but bringing the gospel to the situation and doing that through love is, is a travesty and is a hateful thing and is something that's not going to bring about a transformation to our culture. So all that being said, uh, as we look at the certain men in the book of Jude who come in and they creep in, we are to contend earnestly for the faith, for the things that have been delivered to us once for all through the Holy Scriptures, okay? Because certain men are going to creep in, verse 4 tells us, they are ungodly men and they seek to... The word is, turn the grace of God into lewdness, and in that, deny the only Lord God, Jesus Christ. Okay? Um, and so we are going to see these sensual persons come in, causing divisions, not having the spirit. And uh, we don't want to exchange the truth of God for a lie in the midst of all of this. Uh, Beg also went on to say in a sermon, clueless Christians will always be easy prey for clever charlatans. And So we want to know what it is that we do believe. We want to know what it is that was in verse 3, once for all delivered over to the saints. We want to know what it is that uh, is able to build us up, verse 20, on our most holy faith. And so these uh, things were also spoken to us in verse 17 in Jude. These things that we're to contend for are things that we're to remember. So part of your notes today, you might mark down that we are to remember something in the midst of all it. He has just laid out the vivid colors of those ungodly men, their ungodly deeds, the lust, the complaining, the great swelling words, flattering people to gain an advantage And in all that, with those vivid colors, there's things for us to do now. There are imperatives for us. And the first thing is to remember. What do we remember? We remember words that were spoken, first of all, by the apostles. The book of Ephesians tells us that the apostles lay the foundation for the church. They laid the foundation for the church in their missionary work but also in their writing down the scriptures as they were moved or carried along by the Holy Spirit. The wonderful thing is here in 2019, we have that revelation of God through the apostles written down for us in a wonderfully accurate way. I've been doing much studying lately at at the uh, incredible integrity of That we have in the Bible, even though the copies and the copies and the translations for the last thousands of years, those are actually wonderful, wonderful things that will show that there is no thing that we must doubt about the integrity of the word of God and the authority because of it. It's a wonderful thing that we can go back and be the beloved of Jude who can remember the words of the apostles. We can remember the words of those that walked with Jesus, heard his very words, and then were sent out uh, to be missionaries and church planters in the world. And as their ministry went on, they began to write these things down as they were eyewitnesses of these things. And those things were copied just very scrupulously and very uh, meticulously by the scribes, by the Masorites. Um, and, and, uh, and just great care was taken over the years to translate these things even into the various languages. So thank God for the apostles and the written word that came through them, uh, as first Peter chapter three tells us and second Timothy chapter three, verse 16, tell us, um, (coughs) but notice, excuse me, not only the apostles wrote these things down. But they were speaking, uh, the latter part of verse 17, of our Lord Jesus Christ. So how do we know what the Lord Jesus Christ said? It was written down by the apostles in the word of God. And what did they do? Well, they told you something, verse 18. We're seeing a little bit of God's heart of revelation to us. And what a wonderful thing that we don't just have an oral culture, but we have a written culture as well. Interesting to go to Nepal and be reminded this year, as you go to the various villages, you're interested in the families, you're interested in the tribes, you're interested in the people. So you begin to ask things like, when did your family come here? When did this village come here? And because it's not a a cultural thing for Nepalese to have a written history, everything they have is only oral. And the tragic thing is that not everyone's as excited about history as I am, so they don't pass down those oral stories. And so most people have no idea where they came from. They have no idea how long their village has been there. They really don't have a concept of a deep history of their land or of their peoples. How wonderful it is to be part of a culture that appreciates written history, but even more so to be a part of a faith that appreciates a written history, to be with a God, uh, to have a God who not only reveals himself to us, but writes it down so it can be preserved. And a beautiful thing is, guys, as we're going to read later on in the doxology, our sovereign, powerful God, who created the heavens and the earth, is able to keep that which he has given to us throughout the centuries, throughout the millennia. If God can create something out of nothing, i.e. the universe, he has no problem making sure that the book's okay for a couple thousand years. He's sovereign. He is able. And so we need to remember, and how are we supposed to remember if, ah, uh, whatever, you know, I, mean, I don't think we really have anything that's any sort of authority or any bedrock on which to stand. The wonderful thing is Jude tells us to remember because he knows we have got a book that we can stand on. The apostles spoke to us. Jesus spoke to us. And they told us something in Verse 18. They told us that there would be mockers in the last time that would walk according to their own ungodly lust. that they were sensual people who would cause division and they would not have the Holy Spirit. The fact that that has happened even to this day, that these mockers are there, that these certain men are there, validates, is one validation of the authenticity and the authority of the Word of God. Well, moving away from... Uh, That the vivid display of those certain men, we get into this imperative, but you beloved, build yourself up on your most holy faith, praying in the Holy Spirit. So some good, encouraging, practical things for us to do in the light of what God has told us in the gospel in verse 1 and 2. In the light of the darkness of the false teachers that come in verses 3 through 19. There's something that we're called to do, Christians. There's something we're called to do, beloved. And that is to build ourselves up. Build ourselves up. The book of Colossians speaks to us and says, get some roots. Let those roots go down deep. Be rooted and built up in him. And established in the faith as you've been taught. A great way to build yourself up, to let those roots grow down deep. Be spending time in the word of God as Psalm 1 tells us. Be spending time in the church community where God has given pastors and teachers to you to help edify you and to build you up in the most holy faith. The more you're in the word, the more you're in teaching and you're applying the teachings of the word of God to your life, the more your roots go down deep and the more your foundation is made firm. Ephesians 2.21 says that the whole building is being fitted together and it grows up into a holy temple in the Lord. Something that is happening within our church is each individual stone is being built up all of us stones together are being made and fitted together as to a holy temple into the uh, to the Lord. We, in all of this, something that is edifying to us that builds us up up is the praying in the Holy Spirit. Praying in the Holy Spirit, as Ephesians six eighteen says, "Pray always with all prayer and supplication in the Spirit." I don't believe this is speaking of tongues necessarily. Uh, in the context, but it is spending the time with the Spirit, letting Him inform us how to pray. It's something that we're going to do tonight here at the church that I would just beg you and implore you to just take one Sunday, take one Sunday and come down here to Calvary and spend time with us for an hour praying and interceding for our church, for our people, for our community, for Somalia. If it's a beautiful day, we'll be out in the grass under the shade tree, out kind of out in the community like Philippians, uh, Philippi style with Lydia down by the river, you know. It was just known that prayer was happening there. And here we'll be in our courtyard, weather permitting. I don't know what's going on with the weather. I, we've had thunderstorms messing up our home groups and all this. You know. I think it's going to be nice, so we may be outside. But we will be praying in the Spirit. We will be being led by the Spirit as we pray. John Calvin said, Such is the coldness of our makeup that none can continue praying as he ought without the prompting of the Holy Spirit. We'll let the Holy Spirit prompt our prayers today. So not only are we to remember, not only are we to build ourselves, but we are to keep ourselves. As verse 21 says, keep yourself in the love of God looking for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ unto eternal life. Now, the context of the book Uh, helps us understand this keeping of the Lord, this assurance of salvation. But here we have one part of the keeping. Okay. And we have that. It is, you are to keep yourself Christian. Okay. What's he saying here? Well, he's saying what he's saying. All right. Keep yourself. This would be a man's responsibility portion of salvation. Okay, it's an aspect where we would labor in keeping. Okay, in 2 Peter chapter 1 verses 5 through 12, he says, for this very reason, giving all diligence, add to your faith virtue. So there's labor, there's something that's action that comes along uh, in, in the sanctification process here. And we don't want to get ourselves wrong. We aren't going to be separating this, keeping ourselves from God keeping us, okay? But there is this level of, um, of responsibility on the part of the person. As Peter says, there's a diligence in it. And in diligence, a believer is to add to their faith something. This is something you do. You add to your faith virtue. Virtue is a form of integrity. It's a form of purity, and as a Christian, we're just adding purity and virtue into our life. We add to virtue knowledge. Okay, it's part of that edifying and being in the word of God and growing and knowing God. We add to knowledge self-control. As Christians, we, we are keeping ourselves through adding self-control into our lives. Discipline into our lives. Perseverance into our lives. We add to perseverance, godliness. We add to godliness, brother kindness. We add to brotherly kindness, love. It says if these things are yours and abound, you'll never be barren. You'll never be unfruitful. You'll have fruit in your life that shows that you're a Christian. You'll never be unfruitful in the knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ, it says. But verse 9 tells us in 2 Peter chapter 1, he who lacks these things is short-sighted, even to blindness, and has forgotten that he was cleansed from his old sins. Therefore, brethren, be even more diligent to make your call and election sure, for if you do these things, you'll never stumble. So Jude is writing to Christians. He's writing to beloveds. He's writing to people that he's warned against false teaching. And he's encouraging these Christians, guys, all that the gospel is bought and won and paid for for you requires action on your part in light of it, and this action in it—it's action that is a keeping of yourself. There's a responsibility as a Christian to add to your faith these various attributes that we read of. He uses the word diligence twice in Second Peter. Make your call and election sure. If you're stumbling and bumbling and you keep going through the rigmarole of, am I even a Christian? Well, then, man, you be diligent to make sure you are. You be diligent to make your call and election sure. And as you're doing that, you're diligent, you're keeping yourself, you'll never stumble. For so, verse 11 says in Second Peter chapter 1, for so an entrance will be supplied to you abundantly into the everlasting kingdom of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Then Peter says again in chapter 3 of 2 Peter 3.14. It says, therefore, beloved, looking forward to things, be diligent to be found by him in peace without spot and blameless. And so there's action on the part of a Christian. A Christian will work towards keeping themselves with diligence. They will add to their faith these things. There's a positive activity required of a believer if he's going to stand firm to the end. And the diligence that's spoken of in 2 Peter is reiterated in the book of Jude. Beloved, building yourselves up on your most holy faith, praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in the love of God. There's a continuing in the faith That happens for the Christian. When you read in Acts chapter 4 verse 21. When the first missionary journey was returning back through where they just preached. The word of edification and encouragement that they preached to those new churches there. As they strengthened the souls of the disciples. Acts 14.22. They exhorted them to continue in the faith. You see it? They strengthened the souls of the disciples. They exhorted them to continue in the faith. That's another way of saying keep on in the faith. Colossians has an incredible clause in Colossians 1 And you who were once alienated and enemies in your mind by wicked works, that's bad. Yet now he is reconciled, that's good. In the body of his flesh through death to present you holy and blameless and above reproach in his sight, that's good. Shows what the gospel has done for us. He's purchased us. But the clause is in verse 23, if indeed you continue in the faith. Okay? Just like Calvin said, all that Christ has done for us does no good for us as long as we remain outside of Christ. Okay? We want to be in Christ. We want to cling to Christ. We want to continue in the faith Colossians goes on to say grounded speaks of those roots remember it speaks of the foundation steadfast and are not moved away from the hope of the gospel which you heard want to stay grounded in the gospel we want to stay in the word of God we want to keep those roots grounded deep keeping ourselves in Acts chapter 11 Barnabas would go to Antioch where a revival was taking place and when he saw the grace of God he was glad And he encouraged all of these new believers. It's like going to a Billy Graham crusade or a Greg Laurie harvest event. And all the all the new Christians, all the new believers, they come down front. They receive Jesus Christ. And if Barnabas were to see that, he'd say, awesome. I'm going to encourage you that with purpose of heart, you will continue with the Lord. Right? Don't just come down here. Don't just walk down here. Don't just get the flyer and go home and keep living for yourself and living for the prince and power of darkness. But now, now that you've made a stand for Jesus, now that you've received the gospel, you've received the grace of God with purpose of heart, Barnabas would say, the son of encouragement, go continue with the Lord. Get involved in a church. Be a part of the community that Jesus has paid for us. Be a part of the bride of Christ. Be a part of all that God has for you as a Christian. Another way that we keep ourselves is to abide in the love of Christ. We keep ourselves by abiding. In John 14, 21, he who has my commandments and keeps them, it is he who loves me. And so if we're going to keep ourselves in the love of God, remember we're in Jude verse 21, keep yourselves, keep yourselves where? In the love of God. Anybody here be able to say, I love God? All right. Probably a lot of people like, I love God. Sweet. Okay, awesome. A few people murmuring it out there. If you love God, John 14, 21 says, he who has my commandments and keeps them, it is he who loves me. So a way that we keep ourselves in the love of God is obeying the word of God. In John 15, 9 As the father loved me, I also love you. Abide in my love. So Jude says, keep yourselves in the love of God. And Jesus says, abide in my love. And Jesus goes on to say, if you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love. Just as I kept my father's commandments and I abide in his love. I love that Jesus never tells us to do something that he himself didn't do. All right? He came and he paved the way and he lived for us and he lived the example for us. He's the example and the motivation for us. All right? And he says, look, guys, I obeyed because I love the Father. Now you obey because you love me. I think it was Guzik who said, keep yourselves in the love of God means to keep yourself in harmony with God's ever-present love. And so there's this exhortation to keep yourself. It's very practical. It's an imperative. You've got to do it if you're a Christian, all right? If you're one from verse 1 who's called, go back to Jude 1. You're called. You're sanctified by God. You're preserved, praise God. You've been a receiver of mercy and peace and love in verse 2. You've had it multiplied to you. And in all of that, you're called to keep yourself like what Begg said when he says, he keeps you because you keep yourself. And your keeping of yourself is an evidence that he is a keeping God. It's a bit of the mystery of it all. Sovereign, sovereign calling, God preserving us, God keeping us. And in all of that, we keep ourselves and it just shows that he's a keeping God. Okay. When we wander, when we sin, or when we backslide, or when we use the grace of God as a license to sin, repent, come back, and keep yourself in the love of God. Jenkins tells us the Puritans gave many things of practical helps to keep ourselves in the love of God. And the top four are keep yourself in a constant hatred of all sin. Hate sin. Love God, hate sin. If you begin to flirt with sin and wink with sin and approve of sin in your heart, the love of God is being poured out. You'll be lacking in a love for God. John tells us that. Secondly, keeping yourself in the delight of God's, rather, keep yourself delighting in the presence of God's friends. Be with Christians, spend time with Christians. Spend less time in fellowship with non-believers in a place where you'll be stumbling and bumbling along, always being held back in your walk with Christ. Keep yourself in the presence of other Christians. Bad company indeed corrupts good morals. Someone once said, if you go with the crows, you're sure to be shot. You'll have a difficult time keeping yourself in the love of God if you're walking regularly with non-believers. The third thing out of four was keep yourself in the delight of the ordinances of God. Spend time regularly taking communion, remembering the blood and the body of Christ. And keep increasing in a love of the brethren. We'd come to Christ, but not by ourselves. He have saved us into this flock. Something that helps us keep ourselves is that we were always looking, and we're back in Jude, and we're looking at verse 21. We're always looking for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ unto eternal life. It's something that we are always relishing God's mercy and that he's withheld his wrath from us because of Jesus. The more we think of the good news of the gospel, the more we keep ourselves in his love. But we also look unto eternal life and the hope that we have of heaven. As we move through the book of Jude, somewhat quickly here, verse 22, and on some have compassion, making a distinction. It seems that this next little two-verse section here tells us that there are people who struggle. There are people who doubt in the faith. There are people who have real questions about the faith and about the gospel and about you know, uh, the, the essentials of Christianity. And instead of just bringing the hammer of wrath down on them when they're doubting or when they're struggling, be those that love enough and love well and have compassion on them and help work through these difficult questions with them. That requires a lot of times you to strengthen yourself before you go pour out to them. And since we who are strong are so convinced, then we can go and help the doubters, because we have a good, strong, solid footing, we can help those that are playing with fire, that are dancing around the quicksand. The book of James in chapter 5, verse 19 says, Brethren, if anyone among you begins to wander or wanders from the truth and someone turns him back, let him know that he who turns a sinner from the error of his way will save a soul from death. And will cover a multitude of sins. And I wonder if the Lord would put anyone on your heart today that is in that place. I wonder if you're in that place today. You ought to know that the Lord loves you enough to encourage his people to pour out to you truth. That we have a reasonable faith. That is nothing that we need to be ashamed of. We have answers and wherever we can't, don't have the answers, we can find the answers. We can research the answers and we have the hope that the answer will be found. The beautiful thing, though, is we don't follow blindly. We follow a very reasonable faith. That's an encouraging thing of being a Christian. But I wonder in your mind today if the Lord would bring a friend to your mind that just needs some help navigating some of these tricky questions and that you might reach out to them. There's some you can just have compassion gently. You'll make a distinction. These aren't creeps. These aren't certain men. These are just guys with questions. Moving on in verse 23, but others... Saved with fear, pulling them out of the fire, hating even the garment defiled by the flesh. Man, some they are just questioning, they're doubting, they're going through their struggling time. Others, man, they are in the midst of the sin, they're in the miry clay, they're ankle deep, they're knee deep, they're going waist deep. And man, it's time to build some sort of rope bridge platform to get out there and get them up. We've got to pull them from the fire, pull them from the pit. And all of that being careful that we are not pulled into the fire with them. We hate the garment defiled by the flesh. We realize where they are going is a, it's a, man, it's a sticky path. It's something that many strong men have fallen into, many strong women. And so as we go after them, we get our community around us. We say, guys, be praying. Come with me. Let's go after. Let's get this guy. Let's get this gal, but let's get him out fast because they're beginning to be singed by the fire save them with fear, pulling them from the fire, hating even the garment defiled by the flesh. J. Sidlow Baxter and Charles Swindoll gave good counsel here, saying we must love even while we contend against the heirs of apostates. We must love their souls even while we oppose their words and deplore their ways. Sometimes it's delicately difficult to keep those separate but the love of Christ in our hearts will put wisdom on our lips. It's biblical to hate the sin, but to love the sinner. You hate the stuff that's dragged them under, but you love the soul of the person who's being pulled into eternal destruction. And as a result, you rescue whomever you can. Shattuck says, Such persons should not be rejected as they're doubting. They should not be ignored or ridiculed or harassed. With compassion and conviction, kindness and firmness, mercy and concern, we encourage them in the truth, patiently appointing them to Jesus in his all sufficiency. and with all that being said, we get into just kind of a closing conclusion by jude it 's called a doxology, which means praise, it means glory to god in verse twenty four Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling. So all of these things being said, we've got the beginning of the book, the front book end. We've got this great little uh, section of, man, you are called by God's sovereign grace. You are sanctified by God's grace. You are preserved. You have this future hope of preservation in Jesus Christ. You have mercy and you have peace and love multiplied to you. By the way, there's all this Bad stuff that you're going to have to contend about with bad hombres. This is what they're like, and this is where their message leads to the pits of hell. So in the midst of it all, you, beloved, build yourself up. Edify Be edified. Keep yourself in the love of God. Be a person who's continually in prayer, in the Spirit. Be someone who has the mercy of God always on your mind. Be someone who's running out after those that are being sucked into that deception. Man, when you think about it all, just got to give God glory and praise. Give God glory and praise because in it, and even in your rescue attempt of those brothers, God is able to keep you from stumbling. And this is where we get into the wonderful sovereign aspect of this preservation to the end. Well, God works in us to keep ourselves, we keep ourselves. But we also remember, he is the one who's able. He's the one who's able to keep us from stumbling. Is there anyone in this room that could testify to that? Oh my goodness, like if you ever held to a theology that a person can like leave their salvation, I was the guy or I was the gal and but here I am today by God's grace. He's sent men and women after me to pluck me away from the fire so that I can have freedom so that I can have salvation so that I can walk back in the light of God. He's able to keep us from Stumbling. The word keep there is he protects us and he guards us closely and he preserves us. There was a Greek philosopher, I don't know if I'm saying his name right, Xenophon. And he used this word keep to describe a sure footed horse who does not stumble. Those of us that work with horses much, we know when a horse has just got all four planted. Man, such stability there. But the Stoic philosopher, Epite- Hold on, don't have my glasses on. Epistetus. <laughs> uh, he used it to speak of a good man who does not lapse morally. Just all four planted. He's able to keep us and to preserve you faultless or blameless. not a wonderful thought? When you think of your eternal future, and, and, and that you might run the race well, and that you might finish the race well. My uh, wife's grandfather passed away at 89 years old, and I think about how he wasn't a believer for so long, and, and he was saved. I want to say in like the early 90s or something like that. In, in that race that he ran, he was a believer in Jesus this week, and he entered into glory. What a wonderful thing, but we don't know where the finish line is for us. So many, it's, it's even this week so many, it's only a month away for some 20, 30 years, but God is able to keep us planted firmly. He's able to present, present you faultless and blameless so that when that day you stand before God, you have died or he's come for us. You stand before him, not wearing the filthy robes of your sin, but you stand wearing the robes of his righteousness that had been purchased for by the blood of Jesus. In order for us to be found faultless, someone had to bear our fault. In order for us to appear before God the Father, the judge, as blameless, someone else had to bear our blame. In order for us to have the hope of this worship song at the end of Jude, that we will be presented shameless someone else bore our shame and I hope you know who that was it was Jesus Christ the son of God the creator of the world the creator of you who became flesh and dwelt among us and for the joy that was set before him for the joy of having you with him he endured the cross he despised the shame Philippians chapter 2 says And he was seated at the right hand of the Father on high. Because of his obedience, because of his perfect life and his substitutionary death, he was given the name above any other name in heaven or earth. It's the name of Jesus. Every one of us will bow before that name one day, in one way or another. We have a great confidence in the book of Jude as Christians because it tells us he is able to keep us. It's through God's ability. It's he who is able to keep us to the end. We can have a hope, as 1 John tells us, we can know for certain that we have eternal life because we know who our God is. And whenever the enemy begins to to condemn you and tell you that your sin was too much for Jesus to bear, you can shout back out, he is able to keep me from stumbling and he is able to present me faultless and blameless before his presence and you know what that does when you're confessing those things and worshiping the lord it makes you want to live for jesus all the more it increases that love relationship with jesus and decreases the giving of sin, over to sin in your life it's interesting that this word faultless or blameless doesn't mean without sin It means having no justifiable ground for accusation. It is Christ who stood there as our attorney, our lawyer, our mediator before the father saying, there's no justifiable ground because of what I have done on the cross. Verse 25 to God, our savior who alone is wise, be glory and majesty. So that's this, worship song we can have the worship band come on up the team come back up this worship goes to god god the savior this all helps us just remember who it is that's able to keep us he's a saving god who keeps us he's wise in the way he does that and because of all of this he is worthy of glory it was in Shaddix's book that I read this week that the word glory is doxa in the Greek, which is where we get doxology to praise the Lord. And glory is the honor that is ascribed to God for who he is and what he has done. We kind of think of it in our modern day terms the the honor would be something like the medal of honor given to our war veterans who uh, went above and beyond the call of duty. You might remember just it was the last uh, two weeks that one of our local residents uh, passed away in Bend, a medal of honor, uh, rec- rec- uh, receiver of the medical honor. They don't, they don't like to say that I won the medal of honor or something. You know, they received it for what they had done. And, uh, and that, is a, that is a tribute to men that we just absolutely appreciate what they did. And when you think of our Savior and what he did, And going above and beyond the call of duty. You didn't have to do it. But I'm so glad who you are. you, You went that extra mile. You went that extra way to save us. So glory belongs to you. James Merritt writes, Glory is an attribute that is inherent and intrinsic to God. Glory is as essential to God As light is to the sun, or as blue is to the sky, or as wet is to water, you do not uh, make the sun light, it is light. You do not make the sky blue, it is blue. You do not make water wet, it is wet. Likewise, you do not make God glorious, God is glorious. Glorious. You do not really give God glory. You acknowledge the glory that God already has. And so to God be glory. Ascribe greatness to God. To him be glory and majesty. In the Greek it's megalosun. Speaks of God's greatness and his awesomeness and his marvelous transcendence. His status is the king over all. Majesty, his greatness being loosed and spread throughout all creation. It's great to sing of majesty to the Lord. It's great to sing of his dominion and his power, that he's omnipotent. He's in control over all creation. And he's got dominion or power. (coughs) Excuse me. The great Greek scholar says, Douglas Moo, he says, His dominion or his authority is God's intrinsic right to rule all things. That's who our God is. It's intrinsic to him. He has the right to rule all things. This verse that speaks of his dominion, literally as you do the word study, it informs us that he really does have the whole world in his hands. And it's great. Our kids have been singing that downstairs. And uh, my little two-year-old Tatum was singing at the breakfast table the other day. I've got the whole world in my hands. I'm like, no, no, honey. You don't have the whole world in your hands. He has the whole world in his hands. I've got the whole world. No. <laughs> and then it became this epic battle between the two of us. And she won. So preach to her today because she thinks she's got the whole world in her hands. Okay. Okay. But how humbling for us to think that this truth from a little kid's children's song uh, is something that will help encourage us in our understanding of being preserved to the end and our running of the race to the end with endurance. That even though we may stumble and bumble and fumble, the keeping God in His grace will cause us to keep ourselves being kept by him to him be glory to him be majesty to him be dominion and power now here in the present where sanctification is taking place and forever in the future where preservation is taking place amen amen will you stand with me today Here in this book and even heard of a preacher today that he just kind of glossed over the middle section of the history and stuff just because it, it's, a, it's a rough road. It's a bumpy road and uh, we endured that rough road of the vivid description of false teachers for about three weeks but each week we remembered The bookends of this book of Jude. The gospel of Jesus. How in his foreknowledge and in his sovereign power he calls men and women to be Christians. He elects. As they hear the gospel and hear of his work of redemption and they receive him. He begins a work of the spirit in in those individuals of sanctification. By his grace, he gives us the, the, the strength to be conformed into his image. And he does the conforming and he works in us diligence and we are diligent. And roots go down deep and foundations are put firmly there. And in that process, he is preserving us. what Jude tells us is that that preserving God the great preservative of the Holy Spirit being given to us makes God worthy of so much praise and if you can make up a set of words, if you could write your own poem some of you may be good and gifted at that you would throw a group of words together that says something like this